You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Yes, welcome to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio. I'm your professor, Professor David Kirkville, and I am here with Dr. Stavon Marconi, who will be joining us any moment. We're letting you know that this is Music Biz 101 and more every Wednesday night on Brave New Radio at 8 p.m. Also, you can find the podcast everywhere you want, iTunes, SoundCloud, etc. Music Biz 101 and more. We want to give thanks. Thanks to the folks at Bandon Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine Oive, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group, F-O-U-R, that kind of forefront. Christine has helped professionals at William Patterson, professionals at every university, professionals everywhere in the world manage their investments and plan out their retirement. When somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, you want to think about the Forefront Group, and then you want to go to and email her, christine at forefront.com. Be aware, Managing Your Band 7th Edition is out now. It's been out. It will stay out. It's not going anywhere, and you should read it. I have a number of people recently who specifically told me they like the publishing chapter. There's a lot going on in the publishing world these days, so you should enjoy that. And you should also be aware we are delivering this on behalf of William Patterson University. Some call it that. Some call it the University of William Patterson. And it has been ranked once again by Billboard Magazine as one of the best in the history of the world in terms of music business. So we're there with that. We have a guest. His name is Jordy Freed. All right. So we got Dr. Esteban, who is now going to yes. interview Jordy Freed of the Sony Corporation of America. Dr. Esteban, please take it away. Yes. Well, it's a pleasure, as I was saying earlier, to speak with a musician, because this... Um, they say when we do these podcasts with a business, it's not always a musician. But you call yourself a marketing generalist. That's what I read. So they say. <laughs> we would see, first of all, maybe we should go back because I think sure. it's intriguing to be a sax player, jazz sax player, and doing the whatever you can do to eat and then evolving into yeah. this uh, position. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So origin story is what you're looking for. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, long story short, um, as a young person started playing saxophone, 
you know, in early teens. And uh, immediately I gravitated towards jazz, just loved jazz, became obsessed with jazz. And I was really serious growing up, uh, like in high school, had a band, did gigs, all of that. Um, you know, ironically, my, my dad at the same time, uh, he was a big audiophile too. Um, and believe it or not, was huge on like Sony sound products. <laughs> That's an anecdote and, you know, coincidental later on in my life where I'm at now. But, you know, I've always had this fascination and love for music. And um, I was really serious about performing. Um, and I, I did it for years, I, I, again, as a young person. And when I hit college, I I was good, but listen, it's it's hard, you know, be, being a musician, right? Um, you you have to be truly dedicated to your craft, and um, I knew that I'm not sure I had it in me to put in that kind of time on the performance side, um, and I wanted, you know, I I I wanted a little bit of stability in kind of what my life would look like. Not that being a musician, you don't have stability, but you know, it's less certain perhaps because you you control your own career in a way. Sure. And I, I said, you know what? Like, I love to be able to have that stability and still work with musicians. And that's kind of what got me into the music business. Mm -hmm. But it, it's funny, like the first several years of my career were so rooted in that deeper connection between myself and, and the music and the musicians. Cause I, I was working with jazz musicians when I first started. Mm -hmm. um, and I was representing a lot of the artists that I grew up listening to yeah. and I got to know them and contribute to their careers. Um, so I, initially I was coming from like when I first started I was coming from it really along the lines of, you know, wow, this is an incredible musician. I respect their craft and, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, let me help them. And um, and then it started evolving, you know, really more on the, the business side. So that that's really kind of the the nutshell of the, the high level evolution. And then obviously there's a lot between that and, right. you know, where, get, where I'm at now. Yeah, before but, we get further, did you feel you, did you wrestle with being a sellout? No, I didn't. I, I actually intentionally stopped playing when uh -huh. I started on the business side because I said, you know what, um, you know, you have to really, I, what I didn't want to do, I didn't want to be on the business side, like in using that to further performance. Mm -hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I just, I wanted to say, you know what, like I'm going to, I don't know this business world. I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to put my mindset in it. I'm going to, like, if I'm conflicted between both worlds, how am I ever going to develop in one, you know? And I just said, I, I for me, I have to have a clean break. I'm going to just commit to the business side and, and master that and make that my craft. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. So what do you consider your first break in turning my Wow. First break. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, I, I And I think I know the answer. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the jazz industry, jazz world. Yeah. Um, there's a very, very historic and well-known agent named Ted Kurland. Oh, Do you yeah. know? Yes. 
So Ted, I always knew of him, looked up to him. And when I was 20 years old, maybe a year, a little under two years into working. Yeah. I get an email from him one day out of the blue. I had been working with some people on his staff. I knew people, I, I, he was always like a, a mystery to me. I get an email from him. Hey, Jordy, do you have time for a conversation? I was like, huh, this is interesting. Like really powerful manager agent emailing you. Like right. what does he want to talk about? I'm 20 years old. Um, he heard about some of the work I was doing and wanted to hire me to do special marketing campaign for Gary Burton's new quartet mm-hmm. at the Blue Note premiering, like North American premiere. Right. Um, and I was like, we made a deal. I did that for like six weeks as a consultant and I crushed it <laughs> and earned his trust and started giving me a lot more work. Um, and I became really close with him. And that kind of led to that. That was, I think that was the first real break, you mm-hmm. know, and led to a lot more. I mean, there were other things too, but I think that was like a pivotal moment for me. Right. As a 20 year old, right? right? You know, yeah. So you were then basically in the publicity promotion marketing, yes. yeah, exactly. You do for Gary, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I worked with oh my god, who's who? Um, where do I begin? Gary Burton, Chikoria, um. You know, Bill Frizzell, Christian McBride, Cecile yeah. McLean, Savon, Jack DeJanet, Kenny Garrett, right. Yellow Jackets, um, Hank Jones, Ahmad Jamal, mm-hmm. um, uh, Dave Holland. Like, I could just rattle off a list of all these artists and projects, you know. Um, yeah, it, it was, as a jazz person, it was pretty, pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you, was he... I can't recall if he was hand, was he handling any um, acoustic traditional jazz, not more you know not the Jack Jeanette, but maybe the um, I don't know I have to you know think Joe Morello. We're going to talk about drums. Uh, I, I'm sure I did some traditional. It was a mix of everything, honestly. Uh, some Latin, some yeah. I mean, there there was quite a bit right. of a mix, I'd say, uh, of what I was working on. Um, and it was really like PR and it started to evolve into some new ways of looking at marketing at that time. And again, keep in mind, I was still in, in undergrad. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I, I was at that first job between ages 18 and 23. Mm-hmm. That was my first run in the business. Yeah. Oh, well, I was doing school. school. Yeah. I, I was going to where? Yeah. I was at Temple University, so I'm from Philadelphia. Right, so you were at Temple, but uh, yep. I mean, he called you from Boston because he heard. Yeah, I was at a I was at a firm. You you may or may not know the firm. Um, firm was or is called DL Media. Uh, so Don Don Lukoff. Um, they were based in Philly, and yeah, then I I got a call from Ted, and I was still working for the firm, but I was consulting Ted mm-hmm. and bunch of other clients too. Right. right. Yeah. So how did Blue Note come along? Through Ted, honestly. So um, Ted, ironically, it's a funny story. A lot of people don't know this. Not on my resume. It's not on my LinkedIn. Um, When I left that PR firm after like four plus years after I graduated, Ted hired me and I moved to Boston. So Mm -hmm. he wanted me to be an international agent. 
And I, I lasted like three weeks. I hated it. <laughs> I, I, it didn't work out. Um, and we're, we're still cool. It's close mentor friend. Um, one of my, go ahead. How come, why did that, why did you hate it? What was it about it that made you not enjoy it or, or like it? And did you give it enough time in hindsight? Should you have stuck it out another few months or, you know, even to this day, nope, that was definitely not the thing for me. It, I know to this day it was not the thing for me. Um, maybe I should have given it more time in all fairness to Ted. Um, but it was not the right thing for me. Um, I felt so, okay. In PR and even marketing, heavily creative focused work in terms of how you craft a story and a message and how you reach audience and, you know, impact a brand to an extent, maybe not so much for what I was doing back then. Um, I, I know there are elements of tons of elements of creativity in booking, uh, my wife's agent and a manager. Uh, I know that as you get further up in that world, there are creative elements in anything you do. You just need to find it and tap into it. That type of creativity didn't necessarily speak to me. And I kind of knew very early on. Um, yeah. So that that's why I just kind of knew it wasn't the right thing for me. Um, what was interesting. So when I met and worked with Ted for the first time, I actually, he introduced me to his son and his son is a year older than me. And mm -hmm. I met him at the Gary Burton premiere in 2010 at the Blue Note. And we hit it off and we became friends and he became a really close friend. Mm -hmm. He is a close friend. Um, and he was trying to get me to work for the Blue Note when he got the Blue Note job after we were both at school when we met right. and he went to go work for the Blue Note after he graduated uh, booking the Blue Note and was trying to get me to go work there. And when it didn't work out with Ted, his dad, yeah. he kept pushing, Hey, like you really should work at the Blue Notes. And I was talking to Stephen Susan, the owner of the Blue Note. And I said, you know what? Yeah, sure. Like I'm, I, I want to move to New York, New York. I was going up to New York once a week for four years, pretty much when I was at DL media and, New York felt very, very comfortable. Uh, ironically, New York felt much more comfortable for me than Boston. Yeah. Right. Just because it was familiar and Philly's very similar, smaller, similar vibe. Um, and so I said, you know what? Yeah, I want to move to New York. I want to work on the venue side. I was also fascinated by um, working for a consumer facing brand within the space versus just artists. Right or a label, you know? Um, and the job was director of marketing and PR. So it was a formal marketing job. Now, not just PR and, you know, sprinkling in additional marketing, but it was director of marketing and publicity for the Blue Note New York. So I moved to New York and took that job when I was 23 years old. All right. Had you graduated or not? Yeah, 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 I, I graduated. I was a year out or so uh it, this was 2014 january 2014 is when i made the jump to new york and what was your uh major in college uh so this is funny i started as a poli sci major and then after i started working as a publicist i changed to communications <laughs> so yeah the job pushed me towards the major rather than the major pushing me to the job 
Right. Which was kind of right. interesting. Yeah. So how did you get to Sony? So yeah, this is where it gets really, really interesting. So I was at Blue Note for, I, I had two stints at Blue Note. First stint, director of marketing PR from like Jan 2014 to September 2015. I was doing a lot of work for the brand and, you know, lifestyle marketing to an extent, still focused on the shows. I wanted a shift outside of music and I left to go work for Gray Advertising. Mm -hmm. First job outside of music. I was doing PR and marketing for like the National Park Service, Canon. Um, Blue Note kept trying to get me to come back. And I actually decided to come back after a short stint at Gray. But I learned a ton at Gray. And I had a vision for what I wanted to do at Blue Note. And I came back as a vice president in, in February 2016. Mm -hmm. And the vision was to align the Blue Note brand with brands outside of music like Fortune 100 brands, not for sponsorship, but for actually brand development, business development. Mm -hmm. So I was responsible for strategic marketing, uh, PR and business development, which is basically like kind of a CMO role um, and looking at new business opportunities associated with brand growth globally. Mm -hmm. So I put the brand in short with companies like Intel, Pernod Ricard, the European Union government, NHK, um, and other partners. And one of those partners, the biggest partner happened to be Sony Corporation mm -hmm. headquarters in Tokyo. Um, and that partnership, are, are you guys familiar with Sony Hall in Times Square? Have you heard of this venue? Yeah. yeah. So I came up with a concept to create that venue okay. and brokered the deal between Blue Note and Sony to get that open in 2018. And I'd say out of my entire career, that was my biggest break by far. I mean, that was a, that was a big break sure. for me. Changed my life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a couple of quick follow-ups. Yeah. One thing going, going back, because you had said you wanted to get out of music. Yeah. Can you explain why you wanted to get out and why you wanted to get in? And also make it clear when we're talking about Blue Note, we're not talking about Blue Note Records. Explain Correct. the difference between Blue Note Records and Blue Note Entertainment Group as well, so that people are aware, oh, those are not the same thing. So kind of, Why'd you get out of music and explain the whole, what is Blue Note? Yeah, great call out for sure, because it happens all the time. So I'll start with Blue Note and then I'll go. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Blue Note's a well-known brand in jazz. Most people think Blue Note Records, right? Since 1929 or 39, something like that. Very iconic label owned by Universal Music Group. Um, there's also Blue Note Jazz Club and Blue Note Jazz Clubs worldwide. So there's Blue Note New York, there's Blue Note Tokyo, there's Blue Note Milan. There are a bunch of these Blue Notes around the world. And Blue Note was established in 1981 by Danny Ben Susan. It was kind of a unique music venue that opened for jazz experience that was different from other clubs because it was street level, it was a premium experience. Um, but they're two different companies, right? Mm -hmm. And they actually, they have a great relationship. They do a lot of work together, but technically they are two separate companies. One's on the record label side. One is on the venue side. I was on the live entertainment side, the venue side. Mm -hmm. So that's the clarification. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of why I wanted to get back out of music and then back into music, um, I was getting more exposure to corporate world in my first stint at Blue Note. So like, 
I was working on a partnership with the New York Stock Exchange. I was starting to get exposure to like corporate publicity associated with venue launches and major hospitality partners. And I was really fascinated by that world. Um, I also, as I was getting more advanced as a marketer, I felt that my inspiration, education and understanding was restrained if it was just restricted to music. So I felt like I needed to push for more knowledge um, and exposure to broaden my thinking as a marketer. And that's why I wanted to leave music. What I realized was I didn't necessarily want to leave music. I wanted just more exposure to take that back to music, <laughs> which right. is why I kind of came back and went on, you know, that run that I did in my second stint of Blue Note. Because without that period at Gray, I'm not sure I would have been able to do everything I did in my second tenure at Blue Note. So I hope that answers the, the question. Now, it sounds like um, Gray was ahead of, let's say, what the record companies were doing. And you talked about Gray and you talked about brand and, and marketing the brand and so on. Did you think um, that that was going to transfer over to the jazz side and to the the um the artist side and that the they were going to be receptive to the to this because ray because uh, i would assume gray or Dolan and brembrack and so on doing this for years yes yeah. yeah so i mean gray is a global advertising agency that isn't necessarily focused on entertainment they serve major fortune 100 and 500 companies who need marketing services mm -hmm. um so they're, they have nothing to do with entertainment. Sometimes entertainment folds into their campaigns, but you know they'll do any campaign that makes sense to serve the needs of their client, whatever the objective is. Um, I was, uh, just to interrupt, I was on um, Epic Records in the 70s. And uh, after a while, we were starting to wonder why record companies were so snobbish that they were going to do the publicity and the marketing when Madison Avenue was doing it for years, and why don't they just hire Madison Avenue to do that? Yeah, it's honestly, I think a part of its economy of scale, to mm -hmm. be to be honest. Um, the budgets that these agencies get yeah. for these campaigns from these corporations are so significant that the cost benefit of a record label investing in that kind of work, they would lose money. Yeah. Because the economy of scale based on the way the music industry is set up, at least on the recorded side, there's no way. I mean, I, I've seen those contracts and, you know, on the ad agency side and it's just it's a different world, right. you know, because it's different businesses that drive that economy of scale. So it's really like if if the economy of scale were more aligned from a P&L standpoint, it would absolutely like, yeah, I'm sure they would tap into major ad agencies. But there's no way that there's economic alignment, and that's why they don't do it. Um, but to, I guess to your point on the, the previous question, you know, it, it actually had a lot less to do with the artists and more about the Blue Note brand. And if you think about, like, if I was serving brand clients at Gray, right, and I had to solve problems as a brand marketer to develop campaigns, I'm doing the same thing just in-house at Blue Note. 
And I'm actually rewiring the way I'm thinking and the brand is perceived among consumers to approach it that way versus from a traditional music lens. And there were some very core assumptions and understandings with that. So, for example, um, one assumption and understanding was most people or a big chunk of people go to the Blue Note for the Blue Note name and not the artist. Mm -hmm. That means that it's a brand. Second assumption is there are a lot of people who aren't massive jazz fans, but like jazz casually, but view Blue Note as an entertainment experience rather than going through a singular artist. Another point is it's a global company so you had a big chunk of audience coming from international right so for all those reasons um oh and another reason is tons of people knew that brand in very unique elements of culture business etc unlike many other competitor venues which were very niche to hey the core fans of whatever artists performing For all those reasons, I felt that there was a very unique strategic opportunity to double down on the broadening of that brand to reach a wider customer base, you know, that wouldn't necessarily be tapped into through traditional media channels. And I think part of it, too, with these partnerships is when you look at all these partners, whether it's an Intel or a Penever card, as a publicist, I saw a changing media landscape and I knew that reach was becoming more fragmented, limited. You have to pay your way through reach through social channels. Media outlets aren't there. So where are you actually getting share of voice and which channels and how are you communicating your brand platform, your message? And I felt that if it could be done through partners, that could replace or be even more effective than traditional media sources that we used to rely on that weren't there. What I didn't realize when I created this was yeah, you can do that, but there's also revenue upside too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also elements that push kind of the development of your business, right? Um, like, for example, Blue Note's always looking to expand. So, for example, when you do a four-month pop-up with Pernover Card in, in Barcelona or Madrid, and you're doing this in partnership with a brand like that who's marketing the brand in that market, and you're thinking, hey, do we want to open a venue in Spain? What a great test case, right? (laughs) What a great understanding to look at consumer behavior, audience trends, demand, interest from local partners. Um, So like it markets the brand, it drives revenue and it really, you know, tests some thresholds of business development assumptions. And that's kind of what we started seeing with these deals, right? And it became really interesting because the company was not doing that before we started doing this. And you would never expect it from, you know, an iconic New York jazz club to to do these sorts of things, you know? Yeah. Just for our radio listeners, you're listening to Music Biz 101 and more, and we're talking with Jordy Freed. And Jordy is the director of like 5,000 things at the Sony Music Corporation, not Sony Music. Sony so Corporation. <laughs> yes, Sony America. Corporation. Yes. yes. Strike the word music. I'll have the uh, stenographer strike that from the record. But uh, Sony Corporation <laughs> of America. And Dr. Esteban continues. Uh, I want to get. I want to get into the um, why Sony picked you up in terms of what was their thinking. They were looking to do a, a live venue in Times Square. They were they thought that was a you know a great addition to their brand 
to have that runoff of people's lips. It's at the Sony Theater and so on. Uh, where were they at the point that you were sort of bringing this up? They didn't know. I mean, they had no intention. This was a vision I had. And I was just talking to Sony. And I actually proposed it to them. We So they knew Bluno, right? And obviously, we've been in Japan for a long time, you know, through Bluno Tokyo since 1988. And so the Blue Note's very respected in Japan. And obviously, Sony is a Japanese corporation. And we were looking to launch a new venue. But as a publicist and marketer and someone that understands the, the landscape of venues, I kind of understood you can't just launch a venue. <laughs> what's, what's the story? What's the identity? What makes it unique? What's the distinctive customer experience? What story are we telling? And I felt that it needed to have something that other venues didn't. And I felt that technology, right, was a really interesting element to look at from an audio standpoint, video standpoint, even IP, like what brings that venue brand to life. And I mean, when you look at music and technology, I mean, there are few brands in the world that you know, live up to Sony standards in, in that space, right? Leaders in this area. So I, was talking to some folks at Sony at the time, and I thought, wouldn't it be amazing to fold the value that Sony brings with the operational expertise of Bluno to create Sony Hall? Mm -hmm. And they were very interested, and, and we did it. And that's kind of how it got started. So I was on the Bluno side, and they didn't know they, they wanted a venue until I, I spoke to them, and we created this venue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you created the venue, were you uh, in the weeds with the creation of the venue with in terms of the actual, um, the corners and where the sound system is going to go and the physics of sound and how it's going to act for the audience versus the artist and, and all that? Talk about the depth that you went into in terms of your role in the creation of this hall. And then where did you get that experience? Was that, and it, did that uh, you as a musician come back to you at that point a bit as well? Yeah. I mean, I, I was the project lead to get this. I mean, I, I was responsible for negotiating the deal and managing the partnership. I pitched the partnership, negotiated it, and led the partnership. I was responsible for the project with ownership. Um, so, I mean, that was everything from, you know, logo selection securing domain, um, you know, going point by point in the venue to determine how we were renovating, working with acoustics professionals to determine how we were going to price it out, securing product, uh, determining what PR agency I wanted to, to launch it, uh, influencer strategy, who we were going to book for the, the launch, um, you know, how we were going to structure work with group companies, um, reporting to Sony, like literally, there was a period of like three months. We announced it in late January and opened in March, end of March. There was a period of two months where I was working around the clock. I remember even the contract. I was actually in Cuba when the contract came. <laughs> and yeah, I had to sign the, or we had to sign the contract with Cuba um, for, for we, we had, the owner and I had something going on in Cuba, but um, I, I literally, end to end the the nittiest grittiest details you know uh of getting that 
launched. And then once we launched, I was responsible for the partnership. And, you know, Blue Note operated it as a, one of its core venues, but anything related to Sony was mine. Um, you know, and I, I led that relationship. And, you know, yeah, there was a lot of learning, you know, on the job, to be honest. Um, but a lot of it was very intuitive. A lot of it was backed on years of experience and different elements all kind of coming together. Um, and I had enough experience at that point from a legal standpoint, PR standpoint, marketing standpoint, partnership standpoint, uh, venue operation standpoint, where it's just knowledge you have picked up along the way that all kind of culminates into a single project. Um, and, who owned yeah. the space, though? I mean, the spa was so, the space just so, there and you looked and you saw there, exactly. there's a space we should put exactly. something there. And exactly. then... Exactly. Was it just vacant space and then you had yeah. to get so yes. many? Was it bought? Was it rented? Uh, yeah, I don't want to get into too many details on on like the the structure. Um, but I, I will say, so the venue has been around for a very long time, since the 40s. It originally was called the Diamond Horseshoe. Um, very iconic, like cabaret venue back in like the 40s and 50s. And it was dormant for several decades until... There was an off-Broadway immersive experience called Queen of the Night that opened there. Um, and that ended, and it was dormant again. It was just being used for events. And, you know, the Blue Note team discovered the space. And as I mentioned, we were looking to open a, a new venue. And that's where the idea was, from my side was like, okay, let's, let's make this a very unique experience and let's try and bring a partner like Sony in. So it, it's an existing, it was an existing space for years. It's in the Paramount Hotel. And, um, you know, Blue Note secured the lease. And then we basically formed the partnership from a branding perspective. Um, I mean, technically it's a sponsorship, but it's much more than that because we fold in a lot of the technology. There's a lot of integrated activity across the, uh, the Sony Group company that's done certain things at Sony Hall. Um, but th that's really the where where it's coming from operationally. How many seats does it hold? How many? Uh, what's the capacity of the venue? So I, I actually need to remember. It's been quite a while. I haven't worked in Sony Hall in quite some time. I think it's like five hundred seated, one thousand standing. Right, so mid size like venue, mid cap, yeah. smaller room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In New York yeah. City, but that's a good oh, place. For... Yeah, it, it's a good place, and and I think Blue Note saw that there was a need for that kind of cap in the city. Where is the hall exactly? It gonna... is actually on 46th Street between 7th and 8th Ave in the Paramount Hotel. Oh, yep. okay. it's a, it's across from Hamilton, actually. Ah, all right. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. So that that launched, and I worked on the Sony partnership and my other partnerships for a few years. And I, I was thinking about what are my next steps in my career. And an opportunity came up with Sony to work there mm -hmm. for the sound division. And I was very interested and they knew me. I had been working with them and that's how it happened. They, they just knew, they knew me. I worked with them. I knew that whole team and um, that's how they found me. And they identified that they needed someone with my kind of experience in the company. And uh, yeah, that, <laughs> that's how it happened. So what do you actually do <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis? You want specifics? <laughs> well, How? for example, yes. Like, yeah. what did you do Tuesday or something like that? What did I do Tuesday? 
I'm trying to think of what I did Tuesday. On any given day, I could be on with a streaming service, planning a co-marketing agreement, like an Amazon Music. I could be negotiating an endorsement deal with an artist on our headphones. I could be, you know, developing a royalty business structure associated with, you know, um, you know, a, a custom product. I could be, you know, developing a three-year brand strategy. I could be reconciling budget, you know, for the end of a fiscal year and figuring out how I reallocate for the next fiscal year. Um, I could be in one-on-ones with my team members in their respective areas. Um, I'm bouncing around from meeting to meeting, place to place, time zone to time zone. Um, I'm usually on Tokyo calls every night. I'm usually working during the day. I'm usually working every day. <laughs> yeah. Do you speak Japanese? I don't. I have actually you learned don't. any? Have you do you, uh has it been interesting dealing with uh Japanese culture? Have you had to learn about that and uh, and, yeah. and sort of uh work your way in to how they work over in Japan versus here in America? 100%. So, I mean, thankfully I started back in 2017 when I first made the connection with Sony. So by the time I joined the company, I mean, compared to a lot of new employees that never worked with or for Sony, um, there is a learning curve, especially if you're working with people from a different culture. Uh, I had that, but I had to put in the time prior. So from 2017 to 19, I did four trips to Japan uh, around the Sony partnership and the steel um, and worked with them every day on the Tokyo side and really learned all the nuances and you know, I love Japan. I love the culture. It's a culture based on respect, organization, um, pride in your work. Um, and I, those are things that really resonate with me. So, you know, at, and at the end of the day, it's about uh, putting in the time and earning trust in, and with any colleague, right? Them getting to know you and trust you. And, and I put in a lot of time to do that. Um, and then once you establish yourself in, in that space, you know, you can really do some amazing things together. And, and I love it. So I, I was just there last week. I spent the whole week in Japan last week working at the office, eating in the cafeteria. I'm the only American there, um, you know, only American in most of the meetings that I had, meetings all day, going out to dinner with my colleagues. Um, it, it's an incredible experience. I, I pinch myself every day. I get the privilege to do it. Um, so who do you, you know? So I report to the head of brand and business development who, who yeah, his name is Jun Makino. Um, he's been with Sony a long time. Um, and we funnel up to uh, the person in charge of uh, personal entertainment for Sony. It's, it's interesting because uh, I read about the former power agent in Hollywood in the 80s and 90s, Michael Ovitz. He ran CAA and he helped. I read that book. I read yeah, that book. Uh, yeah. yeah. Michael wrote a book, book and he helped broker the deal between Sony when Sony purchased yeah. uh, so, uh, what was Columbia Records became Sony Music. Yeah. And then he helped uh, Matsushita when yeah. that purchased MCA. And he got all into how much time he spent learning about the culture and, and specifically thinking about the people in Japan and these executives and exactly not what he wanted, what they wanted. And he was able to broker both of these deals and make a whole lot of money. But because he was really thinking hard about that culture and working with them and uh, basically being the brash American going in, 
and working at them, basically. And that's why I was asking that question. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, I, I, reading that book, I, obviously it's a different scale, of course. <laughs> um, but when I read that book, it was so unique and interesting for me to connect with that on maybe a, a smaller scale, um, you know, because a lot of it really holds true. And it, like some of his examples really bring me back into my own meetings and what I've encountered. And, and it's, it's absolutely right. There is a cultural nuance with any country because you know i i've i've been fortunate to see the world through blue note and work in a lot of different countries whether it's uh, poland or spain or brazil or china uh and every country is different so there's cultural nuance everywhere but particularly japan is a truly nuanced culture and the way you do business has to be done a certain way um to achieve an outcome that's good for everyone right and so I, I totally subscribe to everything he wrote. And it's absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely true. Now, in your job, you have worked on various brand collaborations with Doja Cat and Pink and Lil Nas X and Alicia Keys and various artists who are under the Sony Music umbrella. Can yeah. you talk about wh- why? What have you done? What have those brand collaborations? What has been the driving purpose besides just revenue? Talk about that and why what you're doing on your end versus who with whom you are working at the, at the record label side. Yeah. So, so I mean, we work across the music industry, you know, for so let, let me just create the distinction too for listeners who, who may not be aware. So when you hear Sony, everyone kind of goes to one or two products or organizations, right? People think PlayStation, people think TVs, people think Sony Music, people think pictures kind of depends on where you're coming from, right, in your thinking. So, you know, for context, I sit within Sony Corporation of America. Sony Corporation of America is the U.S. holding company or headquarters for our U.S. business. It is an extension of Tokyo headquarters. And obviously, Sony is a very diverse company. We have Sony Music. We have Sony Pictures. We have PlayStation. We have Sony Electronics, right? Those are different companies, they're all within Sony, though, and we all work together on different things. But technically, like these are different companies. So I don't work for Sony Music. I work within Sony Corporation of America, but I'm focused on sound products and sound technologies. With sound products and sound technologies, there's obviously a, a very deep connection and correlation to music, because what do we do with our headphones, right? Um, and sound technologies. What are those sound technologies applied to? Sure, they can apply to film and TV. But particularly Sony's history in the space, you know, they've shepherded, you know, music technology through the world over the years in different ways. So, you know, this kind of started uh, around a product or a a media format, music format called 360 Reality Audio, an immersive music experience. It's spatial audio, essentially. And we were charged, our team was charged with developing the market for this to grow, um, you know, the business, grow the ecosystem, reach more consumers. And in order to do that, the core product itself, even though there's 360 technology, the, the technology is applied to music. So these artists and these labels mix their content in 360 and consumers get an immersive experience. You can experience this on streaming platforms like Amazon Music right now. Idol, Deezer, et cetera. Works with any pair of headphones. It's awesome. Um, 
So when we were really put, doing that first push, we knew, okay, we need to work with artists to reach customers about 360. So we started doing partnerships to create engagement around 360 reality audio. So when you mention artists like Alicia Keys or Little Nas X or Doja Cat, we would do a variety of marketing activities with these artists around their music in 360 to reach customers. So for example, um, reimagining Alicia Keys' entire catalog in 360 reality audio, releasing it to streaming services, doing a video content capture and doing a music video in 360 on YouTube. That's one example, right? And we did this kind of, we, we were doing this kind of activity for kind of the first couple of years of my time at Sony. And it's more recently evolved, not just from 360, but also to the products. So recently we've done activity um, with Khalid around our flagship noise canceling WH-1000X Mark V headphones. We've worked with a rising artist called Santu Santana around our new premium uh, LinkBuds S earbuds. We've also, we're in market right now with biggest artists in the world right now, SZA, on a campaign with LinkBuds. And we even just uh, released a collaboration with the Whitney Houston estate earlier this week on the noise canceling headphones too. Uh, also in line with the Sony Pictures biopic. All of those collaborations have elements of 360 audio activity, but they're also now leaning towards the products themselves. So because we have products and sound technologies and it's all around music, we're really trying to work with the music industry, Sony Music Artists and Beyond, right? To raise awareness for these products, develop the brand. Um, and to your point, you asked about you know, driving revenue versus otherwise, you know, this is all hopefully going to support our goals, but ultimately we are trying to enforce and develop a brand that is really for the music. At the end of the day, we're about creators, whether it's sound technology to empower uh, new ways to create music, whether it's pro audio equipment that enhances creative experience, uh, whether it's consumer, right? Who all they want to do is get the best music experience, especially if they're buying our products. It all kind of comes back to music. So to engage with these types of uh, creators on these types of activities, end to end really kind of checks those goals. Are you told you can only work with artists in the Sony family or could you go to Shawn Mendes who's signed to Island or Bieber or uh, uh, Bruno Mars who's on Atlantic? Do you have to stick with Sony? And you have plenty there at Sony so there's no reason not to, but I'm just curious if there's an edict from the company, just we stick with our own. We, we work across the music industry. We've done collaborations with artists like Dua Lipa. We've, we've done some really great collaborations with BMG. Uh, we did uh, Duran Duran, Keith Richards. We've done uh, AJR. Uh, we did something with the Backstreet Boys here now on BMG. Um, we're doing a couple things with Universal Music Group. Um, obviously we do a lot with Sony music. Um, they are our sister company and they have an incredible roster. Um, what we know though, at the end of the day is, you know, people who buy headphones don't subscribe to record labels. They subscribe to artists, right? So we, we are champions for the artists more than anyone else, regardless of where those artists are. Many of those, and the majority of them, happen to be Sony Music artists, and we're happy to support Sony Music artists. 
Um, but we are reaching music fans. And do you only work with major label artists when it comes to that? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening are indie label artists or deal with indie label artists. Are you are they ever on your radar or you're really focused on mass as opposed to the smaller niches? I'm glad you asked. This is an area that we are very, very interested in right now. I can't get into too many details, but this is an area of real interest for us, uh, especially around 360 Reality Audio. Um, at the end of the day, the creation tools are available to anyone, and we want to empower all creators. So, yeah, we're we very interested in making sure that the indie market is, is served appropriately. Interesting. Okay. We have about two minutes left. Uh, Marconi, do you have a final question that you would like to ask? I'm not really. I'm just intrigued at how you could find and create this job that <laughs> is, in, is in need. There's no question that it's in need. And without it, there would be a, um, a loss of revenue, I'm sure, for either Blue Note or Sony or whatever. Um, but I guess, I think my um, question would be, did you feel many times, did you were at the right present at the, the right place at the right time? Or did you have an idea brewing? And that idea brewing luckily was accepted by people, gatekeepers. That's a really excellent question. And I thought a lot about this in my own self-reflection. And what I've really come to is a couple things. And I know we're short on time, but I'll, I'll try and sum it up. Um, I always wanted to work for a big company. I always wanted to have impact on my work on other people in a way that was positive, right? Um, I, I knew I had a vision for Sony Hall. And I happened to be connected to Sony people at the time. Mm -hmm. And I put in a ton of work to get that done. So I guess if I sum it up, I worked very, 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 very hard to be very lucky. Mm -hmm. It's a good way to put it. It's a good That's way. how I'd sum it up. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. We've been listening to a, a, an amazing interview with Jordy Freed, who is, we'll call him director of brand and business development and the head of partner marketing and strategy video and sound at Sony, Corp the Sony, Sony Corporation of Americas. I almost again went into the, the whole Sony music <laughs> yeah. thing. Because yeah. again, you're talking about perspective. Yeah. My perspective is the music side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody else might be saying it's Sony TV. Yeah. 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 Yes. Who put that title together? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, in academia, it's sort of like it was done by a committee. So that I mean, could get one syllable in there. <laughs> it, it's it's pretty accurate but it also yeah it, it's it's accurate you know um every company has their process so yeah. yeah i sense that when you went to cuba fidel castro put that title together <laughs> so we're not going to go any further than that i know he yes. doesn't want to get that deep because there's some highly secretive things that he does do but um fidel <laughs> We honor him. Yeah. All yeah, right. yeah. So uh, we want to thank you, Jordy, for joining us. And do you know what we say at the end of every episode? Please, please tell me. Yeah. We're and I'm not going to scream it because Marconi, I found out with these brand new fancy mics we're using, um, you still can't scream on Zoom. 
No. So I'm going to do a mature thing. And Jordy, what we say at the end, and you may join it at any point, we say, adios. hi Adios. 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 We could adios. say hi ho, adios. but that would that would be kind of like a Kermit the Frog thing. Yeah, yeah, say, yeah, yeah. Like... <laughs> okay. Adios. Thank you. Adios. Shake it, shake it, mama. Shake it for me Honey sparks of Spanish girl That's all I wanna see Does my cash to me Does my cash to me Hate to disappoint you But at home I got a girl Friends that's between the TV And the table and the kitchen It's where I wanna be It's where Just between you and I, if you decide to cancel plans on me, I don't give a damn. You did a favor, cause my full refrigerator and TV have a day with me.